Before we get into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I just wanted to say that the sheer amount of people that have been writing into the show has been overwhelming. I love hearing from listeners, and it honestly is amazing watching the show grow so fast. Let's Talk About Chef is being listened to in over 51 countries and 290 cities around the world. Everywhere from Estonia to Iran, Serbia, Japan, Russia, Germany, Brazil, basically everywhere. And I owe that to people like you telling your friends and sharing the show on social media, and I am truly grateful for that. If you want to write to me to have your restaurant shout out, or for any other reason, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. I do read and write back to everyone. You can also follow and DM me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Food is the one thing I think about most often. For some strange reason, whenever I close my eyes to go to sleep or zone out while driving the same country roads every day to my restaurant, I find myself thinking about food. Whether it be a vegetable, a dish I wasn't happy about how I played it the night before, or something that I want to bring in so I can play around with it and make another dish, it's always there and it doesn't go away. It's something that chefs all have in common. For some reason, we are all obsessed with food. When I think about food, I think about the history, the story, the ingredient. I've been obsessed for a long time with the way things are made or how we came to eat the things we do and who cooks them. My obsession is the main reason I started this show 30-odd episodes ago. It was a way to talk about food and why it fascinates me, but at the end of the day, I am kind of a ridiculous person. Because of my love and sheer obsession over cookbooks, ingredients, or the people who make great restaurants, I am in no way different than a groupie who loves a band, a person who stands outside of a Supreme store for 48 hours to be able to get a t-shirt with some letters on it. I work in the industry, but I'm also a fan. I'm a student. I'm not a very good businessman. Food to me is an art. It's a way of life. It's a calling. And for whatever reason that most of you listening found your ways into kitchens, I am sure that money was never one of those deciding factors. The real truth is that for people like me, chefs and cooks who make food with passion and a love for what we do, we have never looked at food as a commodity, as a way to make a quick buck. But as the world changes and more and more people are spending their hard-earned paychecks on dining out, the latest cookbook, or a really good olive oil, there are always those people in the world that will want to exploit that. There are people in the world that see food as one thing. Dollar signs. Food can make a lot of money. It can make, quite frankly, a shit ton of money. And wherever there is money to be made, there are people that will take advantage of that. The black market for food has become a global industry. The stealing and selling of products can make criminals millions of dollars. With the price of food rising and the demand for imported and high-quality products at an all-time high, today's master criminals aren't breaking into bank vaults or robbing casinos like they did before. The mafia isn't shaking down corner stores and extorting politicians. Instead, they are planning and executing sophisticated and elaborate food heists. Heists that are happening more and more every single year. You may have seen the stories of people like Jose Sistoni of Miami, who was caught reselling $150,000 worth of shrimp by claiming that his refrigeration truck had broken down and he had to throw all of the shrimp away. In reality, he sold it to another distributor for $32,000 in cash. 
Or you may have heard about the father and son team in Syracuse, New York, who stole over $40,000 worth of chicken wings from a restaurant that they worked at so they could resell them on the black market to other competing restaurants. In New Zealand right now, avocado theft is rampant because of a global shortage driving the price through the roof. $40,000, $32,000 is a lot of money, but it's nothing compared to the multi-million dollar crimes we're talking about today. This week on Let's Talk About Chef, we're talking about some of the biggest food heists of all time. Maple syrup is by far one of the most amazing things on the planet. Being Canadian, I may have a slight bias towards the boiled down sap. It is considered to be one of the running jokes that Canadians are known for on a global stage, along with all of us being lumberjacks, having pet beavers, and for some reason most Americans thinking that we live in igloos, but that's besides the point. The real point is that maple syrup is delicious and wonderful to cook with. You can literally add it to most anything and it will make it taste better. For a chef, if you are making a Bordelaise sauce that won't thicken, add some maple syrup. If you're making a barbecue sauce and want to add a layer of complexity, add some maple syrup. It fixes and changes everything. We have all seen syrups in grocery stores, like the no-name brands and the Aunt Jemima's, all pretending to be maple syrup, when in actual fact they are just glucose. Some brands tote that they contain real maple syrup, even having the idea to put on the label what percentage of actual syrup is in the bottle. Usually it's around 2%, and that is for one very real and very obvious reason. Maple syrup is expensive. Every spring when the maple trees in Quebec start to leak their sap that they've had stored up over the winter, the woods become filled with blue rubber pipes running everywhere in a weird sort of spider's web, collecting the sap which will later be boiled down into the expensive and delicious syrup. A tradition that goes back centuries. Quebec makes so much syrup that they produce around 77% of the entire world's supply of maple syrup. And syrup is expensive and in high demand. When you have years where trees produce more sap than normal, all of a sudden the province has millions and millions of gallons of the stuff, you would think that they would release it, and we would all get syrup for cheap and pour it over everything in our lives and all would be happy. But instead, it goes and gets stored in the Global Strategic Maple Syrup Reserve, essentially a maple syrup cartel, who stole the syrup in barrels in a nondescript warehouse and control how much gets released to the world, therefore being able to keep the prices high for the stuff. It's kind of crazy, 
And when you have a warehouse or several warehouses filled with blue metal barrels of syrup just sitting there while the global market is screaming for more, all it takes is one person to realize that there is money to be made, and that's exactly what happened. The warehouse that the syrup was stolen from sat in an industrial park beside a busy highway in Quebec. Inside its doors were 16,000 barrels, each holding 54 gallons of syrup. For those of you playing at home, that's 864,000 gallons. It costs around $69 per gallon for maple syrup. So, a blank warehouse in a parking lot that only got inspected twice a year was holding $59,616,000 worth of maple syrup. The thieves had a simple yet somewhat genius plan. They rented the other side of the warehouse, cut a hole in the wall, and that allowed them to not raise suspicion when they drove trucks in and out of their side. And that's how they did it. It's not really glamorous, but basically they would empty barrels into other barrels, and then fill those empty blue metal barrels with water and put them back into the huge pile. The stolen syrup would then be driven to the port and put on ships heading towards the biggest market for real Canadian maple syrup in the world, China. Over time, and with only a half-assed inspection twice a year, the thieves were slowly able to steal over 6 million pounds of syrup. And they kept stealing, and then they began to get lazy. They would, instead of filling the empty barrels with water, just put them back empty, assuming that no one was going to touch them. They assumed that their crimes weren't a big deal because, after all, it's just syrup. Who cares? These men underestimated the love of syrup that one man had, however. Inspector Guy Lapointe of the RCMP. When the barrels were found empty during a routine inspection, Lapointe was called in. Think of him as a French-Canadian version of Sherlock Holmes. Except, instead of trying to figure out who murdered the Queen, he instead interviewed over 300 people and had over 40 search warrants issued. It was discovered that besides China, the group of these had set up a legitimate maple syrup business in the neighboring province of New Brunswick, a province with, and I'm quoting Lapointe here, an open and much smaller maple syrup industry. From this legitimate business in New Brunswick, the crew were able to ship to not only China, but also Ontario, Vermont, and New Hampshire. As the investigation wound down, the men were caught and imprisoned. A lot of the syrup was actually recovered and placed back into the blue metal barrels and put back into a warehouse controlled by the syrup cartel. Over the months that the men were active, they had managed to steal and sold over $18 million worth of syrup. First, you get the buckets ready, clean the pans and gather firewood late in the winter. It's maple syrup time. You need warm and sunny days, but still a cold and freezing night time. For just a few weeks, maple syrup time. We boil and boil and boil and boil it all day long. Till 97% of water evaporates just like this song. And when what is left is syrupy, don't leave it too long. Up the fire, maple syrup time. Make the maracas. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Vincero Watches. I love watches and I collect watches. 
I wear a different watch on my wrist every week while I'm out to dinner or cooking and working in my kitchen, but a few months ago I received a Vincero watch and I haven't been able to wear anything else since. Vincero makes super high quality and amazingly crafted watches. They spent over 10 years designing and sourcing only the best materials for their watches and at some point along the way decided to save you the customer and fellow watch fanatic a lot of money by cutting out the middleman and selling their watches directly to you on their website. Right now, listeners of Let's Talk About Chef can get 20% off their entire first purchase by using the offer code CHEF, that's C-H-E-F at checkout. If you want to get 20% off your purchase, head on over to VinceroWatches.com. And now, back to the show. You have heard the name. You have heard stories of it whispered in bars and restaurants, foolish people asking if a bartender has a bottle of it hidden somewhere. Even a bar that is well-stocked with bourbon will still not be able to get their hands on it, and if they did, it would cost you up to $100 an ounce. It is the most sought-after and beloved bourbon in the world. It is called the Unicorn of Bourbon in Kentucky because although you may have heard of it, you've never seen one. I'm talking about Pappy Van Winkle. Pappy Van Winkle is the rarest and hardest to find bourbon, with a price tag on the secondary market of up to $1,500. When and if you can find it, that price can sometimes jump up to $4,000 a bottle. And there are thousands of people literally salivating to spend that kind of money. There are apps you can download right now that will track Pappy Van Winkle bottles. There are entire communities of bourbon collectors that have never even had the opportunity to taste it. And whenever you have something that is in such a high demand and so expensive, you will have a black market. The reason Pappy Van Winkle is so sought after is simple. It's because you can't get any of it. The bourbon producer only makes around a thousand cases a year. Compare that to the 22 million cases Jim Beam puts out and you start to understand why it's so hard to find. When you age a bourbon in a barrel, you lose bourbon every summer due to evaporation. This is known as the angel's share. For most bourbons that are normally aged for 4 to 12 years, that isn't really a big of a deal. But when you are aging Pappy Van Winkle for 20 years, a 55-gallon barrel will only have about 5 gallons of bourbon left in it when it's finally opened. The black market for Pappy Van Winkle is insane. You can buy empty bottles of the bourbon on eBay for around $200, and then people will fill it with a cheaper bourbon and sell the stuff for thousands. It's basically like printing money, and countless people have been caught doing this. Entire cottage industries have been found printing fake labels and heat-sealing bottles and moving them, and that alone is a crime worth talking about. But in 2015, a Kentucky criminal syndicate had the brilliant idea of instead of making fake pappy, they would just steal actual pappy. And so a plan was formed. Essentially, it was an inside job. The criminal mastermind was Gilbert Kurtzinger, a 45-year-old senior employee of the Buffalo Trace Distillery where Pappy Van Winkle is made. Gilbert worked in the shipping department, and so that's how he was able to steal cases of the bourbon without anyone noticing. And although that sounds incredibly easy, you do have to realize how carefully controlled the production of Pappy Van Winkle is. This isn't some barn in the country making moonshine. This is a highly modern distillery with dozens of employees, security systems, and separate buildings for distilling, aging, bottling, and packaging. 
Curtis and his thieves managed to steal over 35 cases of the extremely rare Pappy Van Winkle 23-year-old, the literal greatest bourbon in the world, worth about $25,000. But they didn't stop there. Somehow, they were also able to get away with 18 500-pound barrels of Pappy and one barrel of 17-year-old Eagle Rare bourbon worth well over $100,000. Now, Curtis may have been able to steal the Pappy, and he may have been sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of it, but now he had a problem. Where does he store 18 barrels of bourbon and how does he sell it? Not knowing the answer yet and not really having a plan, he placed the barrels in his backyard under tarps and to stop prying eyes from wondering what was going on, he spray painted over the Buffalo Trace logo of the distillery on the barrels. Satisfied that he had outsmarted everyone with spray paint, he then returned to work and bragged to anyone that would listen that he was the proud owner of 25 cases of Pappy Van Winkle. Gilbert was an idiot. It didn't take long for the authorities to notice the missing bourbon. It also didn't take them very long to interview apparently only two people at the distillery. One who said that Gilbert had been bragging about how much Pappy he had at home. The other woman interviewed was Gilbert's supervisor. One day, not too long before this, she had been taking an inventory of the Pappy Van Winkle and noticed some of it missing. She found it, a few minutes later, in a pile next to the back door that led to the employee parking lot, so she moved it back. When Gilbert went to load the Pappy into his car and finding it missing from being next to the door, he accosted her and demanded to know where she had moved his Pappy Van Winkle. It didn't take very long for the cops to drive over to Gilbert's house, and once they got out of the cop car could smell the bourbon from the road. They took one peek in his backyard and saw the missing 18 spray-painted barrels, so they got a warrant and arrested him. Upon inspection of Gilbert's house, they found bags of illegal steroids, a backpack full of handguns, piles of cash, and a large safe. When asked about the guns, Pappy Van Winkle, and barrels aging in the backyard, Gilbert said, Oh, I'm holding those for Mark Searcy. He's a driver for Wild Turkey. Mark, one of the other involved in the theft, was arrested shortly afterwards. All in all, nine people were charged, and the bourbon that hadn't already been drunk by the apparent criminal syndicate was safely returned. I know that food crimes can seem funny. I know that we can all laugh about them together because in the end, no one really gets hurt. But in 2015, a global logistics company, Freight Watch International, said that around 178 cargo thefts occurred in the second quarter of that year alone. Each theft averaged around $189,000. The real benefit to trafficking in food as opposed to drugs or electronics is that there aren't really any severe penalties against food theft. It's a slap on the wrist, maybe a fine. The idea that the cheese you're eating in a restaurant or buying from a deli could possibly be stolen is kind of ridiculous. We shouldn't have to worry that eating some Gruyere could be benefiting an actual criminal organization, but the threat is there, and according to statistics, you've had a 10% chance of eating something that was stolen. That money from the profit of selling food goes into buying and funding weapons, drugs, and all manners of other crimes. Talking about the theft of nuts in California can seem comical when you compare the other crimes of gang violence and the opioid epidemic ruining the state, but over the last four years alone, over $7.8 million worth of nuts have been stolen. In 2015 alone, that number was over $5 million. Restaurants around North America and the world have brought these stolen nuts for use in their restaurants. 
But it's not like chefs are opening their back doors and buying bags of almonds from out of a truck, even though that does happen sometimes. Instead, we chefs are the drug-addicted people that give our money to the crack-dealing suppliers. We order from our suppliers assuming that the product we are going to get wasn't stolen, wasn't bought by them either on the black market or legally for pennies, and then sold to us legally for a premium. But that's exactly what is happening. Chefs are driving this market forward. Our passion for ingredients and to always have the best products is why this black market exists. There was demand, it got filled. Our love of food is making a lot of very bad people a lot of money. As food prices rise and we pay more and more for dinners out in restaurants and in grocery stores, the food theft will keep growing. It's not going to go away. Unless we start to ask for harsher laws, harsher penalties, and for our governments to take the idea of food theft out of the mindset of being something comical and not as important as narcotics, more and more people will start to steal food. It's been happening for a long time, and it's going to keep happening. It's so easy these days to pick up your phone and order food. I can right now, from my table, decide I want to bring in a specific variety of microgreen, go on my supplier's app and order it, and it will be at my restaurant tomorrow. And that's very easy to do. We all do it. But I think we have to stop taking the easy way out. Instead of getting produce from a massive supplier, why not use local independent greenhouses and farms? I know my suppliers by their first names, how many kids they have, and what they did on the weekend. My cheese comes from producers that we can text personally. Our meat comes from a butcher that raises their own animals and processes them quite literally down the road. Is it more work? Yes, of course it is. Does it take more time? Yes, it does. Is it more expensive? Yes, it takes longer. It means I have to charge a little bit more on my menus. But as a chef, the ingredients coming through my back door are some of the best in the world. And do I worry that the produce or beef I am serving my customers was stolen from a warehouse and by me buying it, I am contributing to a global epidemic? No, I don't. Chefs can change things. We have the power to change things. We can protest the global food theft by how we buy the thing that we love, the thing that we think about constantly, the thing that drives everything we do. The thing that is the reason this show exists, and the thing that makes us the most passionate and obsessed people on the planet. Food. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to thank Vincero Watches for letting me talk about them this week, and remember to use the promo code CHEF at checkout to get 20% off your entire first order. I want to give this week's shout out to the Little Lamb Gastro Pub in Clearwater, Florida. You can check them out on Instagram at Little Lamb Gastro Pub. These guys have been supporting and listening to the podcast since the beginning, and if you are in the area of Clearwater, please check them out, and if you can, make sure to say hello from us. If you want to write into the show, you can reach me by emailing letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow and DM me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I'm taking a much-needed week off going to Montreal and New Brunswick, so there won't be a new episode of the show next week, but we will be back the following Thursday with another brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And if you're in Montreal or on the East Coast, send me a message. It would be great to have a drink. And so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service, and have a great week.
Lexington, one, two, five. Feel sick and dirty, more. 